All right, friends. So glad to have all of you here. It's the first time I haven't had to yell at you to sit down and stop talking to one another. Um, so that's so fun. Hey, I just got to tell you, man, I am so incredibly thankful for this week. Um, not just because we got a... Did you guys know we had a baby? I might remind you every week um, just how beautiful he is. You're going to get pictures soon, but... Hey, I just want to tell y'all, my freezer and then my other freezer are full of food. We've been loved on. You guys have watched our kids. You've taken care of my wife. Y'all texted us. It is awesome to be a part of the church. I just want to tell you that. I feel so loved. I am so thankful. I feel a little delirious because sleep is only getting worse. Um, but it's awesome at the same time. So, hey, I'm, I'm thankful for you guys. And just on behalf of my wife, we are so incredibly thankful. And we're thankful to Jesus because if it wasn't for him, none of you would be like this. We wouldn't be like this. And we wouldn't be a part of this with you. So how cool is that, right? And I hope the church gets to be the church in your life. And if it's not, man, talk to us, like help us. We want to be the church together because the church is a what? It's a people. Come on. The church is a what? It's a people. It's not a, it's not a place. It's not a building. It's not this gymnasium. You didn't come here to do church, you came here to be the church. And tomorrow when you wake up and you're going to go and you're going to live in your neighborhood, you're going to still be the church. If you follow Jesus, submit to him. And uh, I have a feeling we're going to talk about that a little bit this morning. So we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and I'm excited to dive in with you guys in that. It has been a wonderful journey. 1 Corinthians, we're heading towards some, some tough stuff in 1 Corinthians, but I'm not scared. So... Let's do this. Well, hey, let me read this. But before we do, I just want to, I feel like, you know, when it comes to church services, there's just something that your brain's just going to naturally do, okay? You're going to come here and you're going to fall into kind of like a routine of whatever tradition you came out of. You're going to come in here. You're going to kind of shut your brain down and you're going to be like, all right, that's it. Let's endure it. And when this guy's done, we'll go do whatever. But man, let's just pray open-handedly that we'll receive whatever God wants for us, all right? And I'm going to say some things. And because I believe God uses guys like me, just as much as he uses gals and guys like y'all, I'm going to say some stuff, and for some reason it's going to mean something to you because it's from God's word, prayerfully. And what might be meaningful to you is not going to be meaningful to somebody else, and something else might be meaningful to them. But let's just all pray that, like, God, whatever you want to teach us, we're open-handed, we want to hear it. You with me? Yes. Man, I learned a lot this past week. God was kicking me down. And so uh, let's just pray. All right? Father, we're glad to be here. We're thankful. Some of us were, were anxious about being here. And so I pray you just give them the supernatural peace to guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. We lay all of our fears, our anxieties, our thoughts, our expectations down at your feet. And we say, God, do a mighty work in us. Change us. Make us like Jesus. Holy Spirit, talk to us, speak to us, lead us. We pray for our other friends and brothers and sisters in Christ across this whole town or this morning gathering together somewhere else to hear somebody teach the word. I pray you would impact them with it. I pray that they'd be transformed by it. Help us to meet our brothers and sisters that go to other churches and to love them and to pray for them and care for them. And may your church become famous here in Cody, Wyoming. I pray that in Christ's name, amen. All right, chapter nine, am I not free? Verse 1, 
Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and brothers in the Lord, uh, uh, of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on a human authority? Does not the law say the same? For if it is written in the law, uh, for it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It, it was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, it is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure any, anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living from the gospel. But I have, not made, or I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. Man, the word of God is good. Um, so right now, we, you guys are all a part of different kind of generations Okay, you know, we, got, we got boomers, Gen X, Gen Z, Gen, we don't know what they are, but they're coming. And they're all here in this room. And, you know, right now, you know, I don't think people are in, uh, characterizing this age of the church or this age of our culture as the age of enlightenment, are they? I think what we're talking about lately is it seems like it's more, it should be dubbed the age of entitlement, right? And some of the old people are going to break their necks nodding. Yes. Right, because, so what does that look like? Age of entitlement, what does that mean? Well, like, there's just kind of this expectation within the generations and mine. I'm a millennial, and I, I skipped over them earlier. I didn't say them, but they're the best one. And um, we believe in ourselves. And so, but we have this idea that we're owed something, that we deserve something, that I have the right to have a trophy as well, and you should give it to me. I have the right to, you know, get that promotion, have that job. I have the right to graduate from college and already be making the same that my parents are making and living in the same size house and doing all that, right? Like we have all these things that we believe that we're entitled to and it kind of like runs us. It leads us and guides us. It makes us kind of who we are. Now, um, the problem with that is, is if you are thinking about the next generation that way, you're like, man, they're so entitled. Let me just tell you, they were raised by somebody and that somebody is you. They were taught this. They were told the whole world is about them and they could achieve everything they set their mind to. I can't achieve six foot five. 
But I was told I can do anything. And that's great. There's nothing wrong with that. There's a truth in the midst of entitlement. There are things that we should be truly entitled to as human beings, right? In the United States, we have it in some of our paperwork, in our documents, right? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Like, what is, I don't know what that last one means, but the first two, like children, have the right to life, right? We have the right to live free. Slaves should be set free. There's things that we're truly entitled to. So embedded in life, we know that there's true things that we should be entitled to, but those truths are also mixed with some lies. And those lies can be a cancer that leads to the downfall and division of our families, our friendships, our community, to the church, and get in the way. It's when entitlement goes from truth to becoming a, tragi- a tragedy. It's when uh, we are more owned by what we are owed. Instead of having this entitlement, we believe we are supposed to have it and we're enslaved to that entitlement. So how do we address the entitlements in our own personal hearts? Because believe it or not, it starts with you. And if you don't think you have entitlements, um, I think you should take some time to see that you do. So it starts with us. But then how do we, as a people of God, who are called to minister to the generations and pass on, how do we minister to generations who believe they're entitled to everything? How do we do it? And then how do we avoid the tragedy of entitlement, which is just the bondage of being led by your desires at all times? That's the questions we're going to answer today. And that's what Paul wants to talk about. And friends, every one of you are included, whether you're Gen Z or you're the oldest generation in the room. Every one of us have got something to learn today. And so the first point we're going to talk about is don't become owned by what you think you are owed. So in chapter 8, let me remind you where we were last week, because chapter 8, 9, 10, and 11, verse 1 are all one argument that Paul's making. Last week in chapter 8, there, we talked about there was division in the Corinthian church over whether some people had the right to eat meat in uh, idols' temples. And, uh, and then there was the other side that believed that their faith couldn't accept that. Like, you can't do that. And so it created a division. And so Paul just simply answers, yeah, you totally have a right to do that, right? Because... Idols aren't real. The meat's not spiritually tainted. Hopefully it's salty. And uh, that's a joke, by the way. Okay, some of you are catching on. Um, But what he said was, yeah, you have the right to eat in there. But what if that doesn't make sense to somebody else in the church? In fact, what if there are some people that are deeply offended by you eating in the temple because they used to worship in those temples. And so when they see you doing it, they see it as dangerous. They see it with toying around with satanic things. And he eventually comes to a conclusion. He says, look, hey, um, not only you're doing that, but you're also giving people permission. It's like your buddy struggles with alcoholism and you're taking him and you're going and getting drinks. Yeah, you have the freedom to get a drink. The Bible never says you can't drink alcohol. Right? You're like, well, I'm free to do that. Yeah, but what if that's a stumbling block for your buddy? And so he says, guys, how much better to give up these things that you think you have a right to for the sake of your brother at times? That love should lead your decisions with your entitlements, with your rights. That's the point that he talked about last week. So Paul concludes chapter 8 talking to these people who are like knowledgeable. They call themselves the knowledgeable ones. Um, by realize, helping them realize that when you do this, when you put your rights above everybody else and it's all about you, 
that you can end up sinning against your brother. And then he says, if you sin against your brother in this way, you're also sinning against Christ. Side note, think about this for a second. Jesus is personally sinned against when somebody sins against you. That's pretty cool. He takes personal offense and says, hey, someone comes after you, they're coming after me. That's interesting. I love that. So Paul's point in chapter eight is how much better to give up meat, to give up these entitlements for those that Christ loves. So in chapter nine, we're here, we're jumping in. Chapter nine is a continuation of the argument. And what he's gonna do in chapter nine is he's, gonna, he's handling the complaints they have that Paul won't accept their money. Yeah, you might be thinking in, your, in this culture, you'd be like, that's weird, I don't wanna give him his money anyways. But in their culture, this means something. So they're complaining that he won't take the money. So he says this, he starts off, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord, Corinthians? If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense against those who would examine me. So Paul is still addressing the Christians in Corinth who boast about their knowledge. And what he's trying to do is he's trying to help them recognize, look, you think because you're so knowledgeable that you've got these privileges. But remember, I'm an apostle of Jesus. An apostle is an ascent one. And he's saying, look, you wouldn't even have knowledge if God did not send me to come to you. And this is what God has done. He sent me to come and to be with you. So look, uh, let's just remind you of my position. I'm an apostle. This is what I do. And so uh, I've got a lot of rights. But here's the problem. They don't really like Paul. And they're showcasing that. And Paul's trying to like, hey, guys, don't, don't you remember my... How, like what I did, I brought this for you guys. Like, listen, I'm not trying to rob you. Like I, I left a lot to come to you, but we know from chapters one and three, if you're with us, these guys don't really like Paul. They're like complaining about Paul. There's some of them, they're going like, ah, I'd rather have Apollos. I'd rather have Peter. You know, I, I like Jesus' style of doing things. And uh, we might criticize them, but don't we do the same thing all the time? Nah, I like that pastor, or I like the way he talks, or I like this style of ministry. I, you know, I like sitting in a circle rather than rows. I just prefer it a different way. And we do that all the time. And what we begin to do, because we get so stuck staring at our own belly buttons, everybody who gets in our way, we begin to examine them. And listen, every one of us knows how to put other people on trial, don't we? You're a natural at putting other people on trial. When someone doesn't fit into your special narrative, we examine them, you examine them, and you scrutinize them with surgical accuracy. Don't you? And it usually happens when you're holding your steering wheel in your car, you're thinking about them. We pour over every word in the emails they send. We read into every line. And every personal encounter we have with them is tense, and it's like awkward smiles. You do that, you come to church, and you don't like them. She's like, good to see you, yeah. And then you like move on, you know? It's because in your head, you've already cast your personal judgment against them. You've already stacking up who they are. And you're like, I don't prefer you. You get in the way of what I think the way it should be. That's what the Corinthians are doing. And they're doing it to Paul. Paul doesn't fit their mold. So he reminds them of his role in their life. He's an apostle. He's a sent one. It's his job to show them the way of following Jesus. But they don't like the way he does it. So because they became enslaved to their own personal rights, like I have, to their entitlements, he uses his own life as an illustration of the way to follow Jesus. Verse four, do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife 
as do the other apostles and the brothers and the Lord and uh, brothers of the Lord and Cephas. Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? So what Paul is basically saying is like, look, is it just Barnabas and I who have the freedom to eat and drink? No, we, we could do that with y'all. Like we could do this. I could eat in that idol's temple with you. Don't I have the right to take along a wife? I haven't taken a wife. But don't I have the right to? Don't I have the right to take? I can, I, yes, I can receive financial support from you guys for bringing you the gospel. I have the right to do that, guys. And what Paul's doing, he's listing off three different things that he has a right to. There's a, they're arguing for a right to eat meat in a temple. He's talking about, I have the right to have a companion in life. And so what he's doing is addressing the issue from chapter 8. He's adjust, addressing the issue from chapter 7 about marriage and singleness. All right? And he's now tackling another issue they have with him, which is the money. And so every issue that these guys raise with Paul has a lot to do with them and what they feel like they deserve and what they have a right to do and what they're owed. That's most of their problem with Paul. And so Paul raises these three illustrations to just show off that there's something better. Guys, look at me. There's a better way to live than just to follow everything that you think it should be at the whole cosmos should revolve around you. And so what does Paul do? He makes an argument. So he's going to lock in on the final one. Yes, I have the right to receive financial support from you. Let, you know what? Let me prove it to you. And what he does is he gives you five arguments of why he has that right. Number one, the first argument is because it's an ordinary practice. Look at verse seven. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who does that? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Hey, ordinarily, anybody who does any of those things, they get paid for it, Right? Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. The second argument is a biblical practice. He says, look, the Bible even says it. Do, not, do I say these things on a human authority or does not the law say the same thing? He says, look, should you muzzle an ox? And he just goes and explains like, hey, that verse is not about the ox. It's about us. The third argument is a common sense practice. It's common sense. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? Like how much more important is like you have eternal salvation with God than five bucks? Do those even like equal at all? If you understand it, you're like, what's five bucks compared to eternity? He's like, yeah, totally, common sense. The fourth is the religious practice. He says, do, verse 13, do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? He's just saying, look, in the Bible, in the temples, in our religious practice, whether it's in these temples or in Jerusalem, they do the same thing. You're right. I have every right to do that. And then finally, number five, he brings like the heavy hitter, right? He brings Jesus into the mix. Oh, you brought up Jesus. He says, in the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living from the gospel. And what he's referring to is John 10, 10, a laborer is worth his wages. And so Paul says, you guys are so right. You should be able to fund my ministry. You should be able to support me. But I said no to that. But I saw, I, when I was reading this and I was seeing those five arguments, I saw myself in the Corinthians. Years ago, I was working at a place called Teen Valley Ranch. It's a Christian camp. And I was an assistant program director to the program director, obviously. And, um, you know, I got to do a lot of stuff. As you guys imagine, I've got the personality for a program director. I like dance around and do games and loud personality. So I've got the giftings for it, argument number one. All right, I've got the experience. I've been running with the program director for a while. I know the camp, right? People like hearing me do it. 
Well, eventually that program director left and there was a vacancy. And so in my heart, I'm like, oh, cool. You know, like, I'm not going to fight for it, but yeah, of course, I'm going to be the next program director. And so for the interim period, yeah, that's what I did. I was a program director. I kind of like jumped into stuff. I ran some programs. I did a few things. I led games. I welcomed groups, all that stuff. Well, eventually our director felt led by the Lord to hire a guy who was not connected to our camp to come to be the program director. Wait a second. He doesn't know the camp. He doesn't know our songs. He doesn't know the games. He doesn't know how we welcome people. I do. I should be the program director. And so what ended up happening is you guys can imagine, and I'm mouthy, okay? Imagine me at 22. Um, and I'm not 22 if you're wondering, okay? Some of you are looking at me and you're like, is he 23 now? Um, okay, it was about 10 years ago. And so he came on. And what ended up happening is, look, guys, I was staring at my own navel and what I thought I was entitled to, what I deserved, and I had my five reasons of why I should be in that position. And so what happened is when he came in, he began to fall short. He didn't meet the standard I expected. He didn't run that game the way I would run that game. And then it led to some blow-ups. And it led to some frustration. It led to some division. Eventually, it led to me leaving the camp. Because I made it about me not about the people who came there to hear about their good and glorious Savior. Wow. And that's me still today. Is that you? So this is what happens. When we get that way and we build up our five arguments why we should have it, what ends up happening is we begin to be owned by what we think we're owed. You're enslaved to yourself. You're enslaved to your entitlement. And when you're enslaved to your entitlement, what ends up happening is it distorts your, your perception of reality. You don't start seeing things right. Have you ever felt that? You're like drunken with your own entitlement. You're just bouncing left to right and you're banging into people and you're hurting them. Number two, it impairs your ability to receive gifts. You can't receive gifts because everything is judgment and that's not the way I want it. It should have been this way and why didn't you give me this? Like, man, when I give my daughter a gift and she's like, well, that's not the one I wanted. I'm like, well, frick, boom. And I'm like, I'm gonna destroy it, right? Doesn't something inside of you just wanna like, are you crazy? You entitled little kid. And she's like, she's six, Greg, like, calm down. Um, it's crazy, you just can't even receive gifts because you're always thinking about what you deserve and what you're owed. And number three is it turns you against others very quickly. Everybody in your life starts to be somebody who is either a means to an end or an obstacle in your way because you're entitled. For the Corinthians, Paul was not the means that they were hoping that would meet their end. So he became an obstacle in their way. And so they started saying, I'd rather have Apollos because I like his ways. Or I'd rather have Peter because I like the way he preaches. You feel this, you feel this personally? Man, if you don't, I spent five days feeling it very personally. Man, our rights and our entitlements, whether they are true or not, they can become a stumbling block on the way to rooting the gospel deep down in your heart. And you can't receive that gift of grace. And they also get in the way of the hurting, broken, lost in darkness, neighbors that you have living around you right now. Your eyes come off mission because mission is you. Why would I go to my neighbor unless he can serve me? So maybe it's your me time. I'm owed some me time. I've had a lot of them time. It's time for me some me time. Or maybe it's your vacation time. I deserve this vacation time. In fact, I deserve more. If my boss would get on board, he'd finally realize that. 
you deserve better pay, you're entitled to an extension on your homework assignment. Come on, teacher, like, you know, you don't understand. I was playing video games last night. I just, I had to get me some me time and just give me some time. You deserve that extra glass of wine. You're owed that thank you, but you didn't get it. You should be starting to end the next football game because you've been working harder and you're better, but you didn't. Or you should be leading that ministry. Why don't they see you? Why don't they see your giftings? What ends up happening is everybody starts to become your adversary. Everybody's getting in your way. It's all about you. It's all about me. And look, you may be truly entitled to it and a thousand other things. And you may have your five arguments why you're entitled to all those things. But they become tragedies, not truths in your life when you take, when you cannot get your mind off of them. If you can't get your mind off of it, you're caught in the hurricane. And all you're seeing is how everybody's disappointing you. I hate this, man, because it's me. That's me, me, me. The Corinthians and us, we struggle with navel gazing. We struggle with self-centeredness. And we're missing the thing that Paul is trying to tell us. So what is Paul trying to say? Go to verse 12. Verse 12, second sentence. 12b says this. He's got all these rights, but he says, nevertheless, after listing off five things of why, yes, I have this right. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. So Paul's living for something different. It's kind of like this. This is what Paul's saying. Um, it's like going on a, like going and riding some trails up in the mountains. Some of you guys have done this on horses. Last year, I got to go on a, a ride with my brother, Eric. We were riding up in the mountains on horses. And, uh, you know, it's big, wonderful Wyoming, right? And so we're riding through these open spaces, and you can kind of just kind of ride wherever you want. All right, let's go this way. And I'm riding on a horse named Bart, which is really funny. And um, we're riding around, and I'm just kind of getting used to riding on Bart. Well, then we go into the woods. And I was going to wear the shirt today. I, I couldn't find it. I've got a shirt that's got a massive hole in it. You know why I got a hole in it? Because Bart wanted to go that way. And I didn't want to go that way. And the tree just went into my jacket, into my shirt, and just ripped it all. And I was like, what in the world? It's like dangerous in there, you know, riding around. Like branches are everywhere. You could see, I'm like, man, I'm going to lose an eye in this place, you know. There's just all this stuff everywhere. And so then we busted out into the open again. I was like, oh, thank goodness. And so, you know, when you're in the woods, you got to be like looking and dodging. And when you're out in the open, you can get a little sloppy, you know. You're going to lay back and check stuff out. So we get up onto the mountain, and we're going to have to go back into the woods again. And I was like, oh, man, here we go again. But this time it was different. Some beautiful, lovely, wonderful soul cleared the trail and its branches and its logs. You could see the saw marks where they cut one side, cut the other, move them, cut those branches down, get them out of the way. So I got to ride this trail free and clear. Praise God for Eric Monfeld. That brother spent days, miles up there to clear trail, to make the way clear. And that is exactly what Paul is saying. Look, I can leave the logs down and we could jump these things. We could just sit here and just all try to dodge it. But he's saying, like John the Baptist, make straight the way of the Lord. Jesus already says that the way is narrow and hard to find, but I think some of us were making the way hard to ride because we're entitled. Because I have the right to do this. And it's all about you. Some of us make the way way harder to find and significantly harder to ride due to a self-focus. So what happens with that first, uh, when you get self-focused like that, you don't point anybody to Jesus. You're not even concerned about it. The trailhead's right there and you're just sitting and you're, you're not even waving at people, you're just letting people walk on by. 
Second thing, we, we don't act like it really matters to us. Church, Jesus, it's just it's something that we add to our schedules. But if we were really to boil it down, your kids' sports are more important than Jesus. Listen to me. Your kids' sports are more important than Jesus and their life. May God convict you through the Spirit if that's true. Third, we believe that we're owed something and we're owned by it. We're enslaved to it, guys. Me, I am too. So enslaved to it. And we're making that trail, not free and clear. We're not willing to give up things so people might know Jesus. We're like, ah, oh, that's a little too much. That's my me time. But for Paul, Paul's like, man, I've had that life. I'm not doing that anymore. I found a better way to live. Paul actually was a part of a religious sect that when the Jews already had 516, 17 laws, and they started adding more. Hey, you, you can't pick up your mat. You can only walk 10 yards. You can't do this. You can't do that. And they added more and more logs to the trail, making it harder and harder to find God and to follow God. They made it difficult. And Paul saw that, that religiosity is not going to work, and so he left that. But Paul's also in a city like Corinth, and he's seen how the other side, where it's like, hey, live free and clear. Whatever your stomach wants, whatever your heart wants, whatever your mind tells you you want, just go get it, man. You do you. That didn't, ha- that didn't start in America. It started in the garden. And Paul's like, man, that's not the way either. That leads to destruction. Legalism leads to destruction. But there's something right here in the middle, and it's beautiful, and I want you to see it. Verse 15 through 17. I love this. I think you have all these rights, and he says, but I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any provision. Look, I'm not trying to play coy with you. I'm not trying to get anything from you, for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. Verse 16, for if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Have you ever said that? Verse 17, for if I do this of my own will, I have a reward, but if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. So what's Paul talking about? Paul is talking about the duty and the joy that is laid upon him to preach the gospel. First, it is his duty to do so because Christ has asked him to do it. As an apostle of Jesus, apostle means he's a sent one. He is sent by Jesus to make a way for the king, show people how to follow him. And that's what he's been doing and he spent his whole life doing. His preaching itself with all of its trials and miseries was just a part of his day's work is what he's saying. Listen to this, which he is commanded to do it. So he's, look, I don't deserve any thanks. This is my job. I'm just doing my job. That's what Paul's saying. I'm just doing my job. It's the duty that God's given me to do. But there's also a joy and a gladness in the service. There's a commentary writer early in the 1900s, his name's Alexander McLaren, and he says it like this. He would like to have, Paul, would like to have a little bit of glad service over and above what he's ordered to do so that he may have somewhat to boast of, all right? Somewhat to boast of. It's kind of like this. Listen, I'm a husband and I'm a father. My wife is Bonnie. We have three kids. It's my job to take care of them. It's my duty. But it's also a little bit of my joy. Like, I'm glad to do it. I kind of like my wife. She's pretty cool. I kind of like my kids. Like, there's a joy in it. I love hearing them scream, Daddy. Like, I, it's my, I better serve them. That's my job. I better do my job. But there's a bit of me that's like, no, nah, I, I like this. It's kind of fun. 
It's a glad joy. So sometimes I'll go above what I need to do or what is asked of me because I just, I, I've got joy in it. That's what he is talking about here. Paul had no choice. He had to preach the gospel of Christ to the Corinthians. It was his duty that was heavenly laid upon him to do so. Think about that. But it was also his joy to do it for free. Even though he had every right or entitlement to be supported by them financially. He turned down the money because he wanted to not lay a stumbling block or a log in front of their feet. And Jesus didn't ask them to do that. In fact, Jesus gave him full permission. Bro, you could totally receive this. And he goes, you know what? I don't want to. He's, that's why he's saying, he's like, I've got something to boast in. He's not saying boast is like, look at me. He's saying like, no, it's a little bit of like joy. Like I get to do this. And Jesus didn't ask me to do it. He did ask me to preach the gospel and woe to me if I don't. But he didn't ask me to do that. And I'd just love to do it. That's awesome. So friends, I think there's two motives in this. And these motives we can learn from. First is the motive of duty. There's no doubt in my heart, hopefully in yours, that the apostles had a special job of founding the church, building the foundation, sent out. But the commission from Jesus Christ to go and make disciples, every nation, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that God has commanded us, that's not just a job for the apostles. If you're a Christian, if you're part of the church, that's your job. You know that? And if it's the job of the church, every job of the church is the job of the individual. For you and for me, it's our job. It's our duty. It's what we do. We're the people of God. It's not just apostles. It's not just those gifted in evangelism. But look, the mo look, this is the motivation. You're going to do it. Now, of course, your life and your spiritual giftings, where you work, what you do, that's going to funnel you to where it's going to be at, right? I don't work in the oil field. I don't see those guys a lot. Carson does. He's a missionary there. What do you do? Do you go to a gym? Do you work out here? Do you work as an electrician? You stay at home mom? You do homeschool stuff? You a teacher? All those things funnel you to where you do your duty not just to the school or to the oil field or whatever, where you get to preach the gospel and be about it. It funnels you to there. You tracking? And God has given you some amazing giftings. You're like, what I don't have, I don't know. Okay, that's just what we call an excuse in this world. Okay, that's an excuse. Figure it out. You got a Bible in your lap, we'll help you. I think a lot of us, like Jesus tells us like, hey, go and make disciples. And we go, I'd rather not. Uh, yesterday in my devotional time with Jesus, spending time with him, I was reading Exodus 1, 2, and 3. And there's Moses is right there. He comes across a burning bush, really weird. And God starts talking to him and says, hey, you've got a people back in Egypt. You love them. I love them. But they're enslaved. And hey, I want you to go back to do this. And what, is, does, what does Moses say? Does he go like, it's my duty and my joy. And then he goes, no, he goes, no, I, I can't do that. I can't do that. And he goes, no, 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 I'll give you some signs. You can totally do it. He's like, yeah, but I can't talk well. And he's like, well, okay, you know, and then it literally says the anger of the Lord is kindled against him. He's like, listen, brother, I just gave you three signs. I, you just turned a staff into a snake. I just put, made your hand leprous, and then it's back to normal. You pour water on the ground and turn into blood. Like, what else do you need, kid? Go. So finally he goes, right? And I think it's the same thing for us. God is saying, brother, go. You may not have a staff that turns into a snake, water that turns into blood, and a hand that can turn leprous and go back but you do have the resurrected Jesus as your proof. 
man, we got something for us. And uh, you do have a people. Every single one of you who follows Jesus, you have a congregation. They're in your neighborhoods and they're at your job. And you are called to go and steward that flock, to preach the gospel, to disciple them, to love them, to be with them. Not just invite them to come to hear my donkey face. God sent you to them and you're a, you are God's means of blessing to them. Man, that we would wake up and see that. The baristas in my coffee shop, they know what I'm about. And I tell them and I invite them. And they're like, yeah, yeah, we heard it, Greg. I work on Sundays. I'm like, well, let's change that. You know, come with me. How about you just come to my house? Be about it. The second motivation is that of joy and gladness. Joy and gladness. Paul says it beautifully in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Listen to this, guys. He says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being in the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. He's like, man, does, does Jesus give you some happiness? Does he make you happy? Does he give you some joy? Are you overjoyed what Jesus has done? Or are you just filled with so much bitterness over what he hasn't given you yet? Man, are you overjoyed that God sees you? He doesn't call you by your sin. He calls you by your name. Or are you just so caught up in calling other people names and this is what they are and they're getting in my way? It's got to be our joy. I think I've discovered, guys, in my personal life, I'm just going to be real with you guys, I am least evangelistic, least on mission for Jesus, least living the way I want, and least happy when I'm only focusing on me and how y'all can make me happy. I'm least happy when that happens. McLaren says it like this. He says, everybody who has found Jesus Christ can say, I have found the Messiah. And everybody who knows him can say, come in here and I will tell you what the Lord has done for my soul. Since you can do it, you are bound to do it. And if you are one of those dumb dogs lying down and loving to slumber, that's a proverb, of whom there are such crowds paralyzing the energies and weakening the witness of every church upon earth, then you are criminally and suicidally oblivious of an obligation which is a joy and a privilege as much as it is a duty. If that isn't sobering, I don't know what is. What is wrong with us, guys? You guys are numb right now. I'm not gonna, look, I am just a big, I would rather, if I, this microphone wouldn't feedback, I'd run out there and just like grab you and shake you. Come awake, wake up. Look, I'll leave here, I'll get in the hall, I'll see you in the hall, and I'm gonna tell you to wake up again. I don't care, wake up, y'all, and wake me up. Are we dumb dogs? Are we caught up in our entitlements? Is it really all about us? Is this what this is about? Is that what Outpost is about? Is it just about us? Like what questions are we really asking? I don't really know. But maybe it's a combination of all these things. But what I see in Paul is a greater way to live. It's a better way to live. It's happier. It's more joyous. It's a way that's free from bondage to rights and entitlements. It's a life that is motivated by the love of Jesus. It's a life that's aim is not selfless or selfish, but selfless. It's like living with open hands and saying, God, you can give me whatever you want and you can take anything you want. Think of the thing that you would never let go of. Me and my wife lately, we said, 
Trip Anderson Brooks. You gave him to us, you can take him away. Boone Brooks, Olivia Brooks, Bonnie Brooks, those things are in my hand and I wanna, I wanna hold them. But you, you, can't, you can't do anything with these. You can have everything else in my life, but not those. My house, my cars, my me time. And are we living like this and saying, well, it's really about me? Or are we saying, God, you know what? You are good and I trust you. you if you were going to send your own son, if you opened your hands with your own son, the son of God, you put him on a cross for me and you gave it to me and you did it free of charge. I didn't have to earn it. I couldn't pay for it. I couldn't buy my way into it. You just said, you can have it. Well, then, God, why wouldn't I open my hands? Would you help me open my hands? Look, church, are you ready to open your hands? If you got anything you're closed on, you're enslaved to that thing. So you say, okay, well, what's the point? What's the reward? What am I getting out of this? Paul says it. He says, what then is my reward? What am I going to get out of this? What am I going to get out of giving you everything? What am I going to get out of saying, you can have my house, you can have my kids, it's all yours, man. Do what you want, God. What are you going to get out of it? He says, that in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. He just said, I love you. God, I love you. You can have it. It's free. Here's the thing about what's going on in Corinth, and it's true in your hearts too, and it's true in mine. They want to financially support him because that's what their culture did, but there's a little bit of, I've got a sneaking suspicion, it's a little bit of like, if we financially support him, he's kind of obligated to us. You know what I'm talking about? Well, I paid for those speakers. I paid for these chairs. I paid so that we can be in this place. They better listen to what I have to say. Paul, you better get in line. I've been giving you money. I supported your ministry. The only reason why you got uh, clothes on your back and food in your mouth is because I paid for that. You see that? Paul's saying, I wanted to give it to you free of charge so you could realize you don't buy yourself into a free gospel. Jesus has nothing that you can buy from him. He comes to you and says, hey, brother, it's all free. I don't need your money. I don't need your time. I don't need your clothes. You know what I need? I need everything right here in your heart. Let me come and make my home with you, and you'll be mine, and I'll be yours, and we're going to do this together. And I'm going to show you a better way. You will no longer be a slave to sin. You'll be free. You'll be a son and daughter of God. Like, do you want that? I do. I want to be free. And I'm so entitled, and I need you all to help me to see that. And I pray in your community groups this week, you guys will talk about this. What are the things that you're holding on to so tightly and it's distracting you, it's creating division in your community, division in your marriage, division in your friendships. You're saying, God, I want to give it to you because I love. And then what is holding you back from just going all in with that free gospel and freely giving it to others? What's holding you back? Alpos Community Church, I pray this week you are set free to go and live on mission and love God, love each other, and love those in your neighborhood and in your jobs. Let me pray for you. God, thank you for the free gospel. Thank you that you love me. Thank you that you rescued me when I was 15 years old, dead in my trespasses and sins. You made me alive in Christ Jesus. Praise be to your name. I pray for this church in here. Lord, I, th I think a lot of people spiritually were numb, and we need your help. We're not sure that we want to give you our house we're not sure we want to open up our hands with our family or with our children. But I pray right now, the Spirit of God, you would help us
to have peace, to know that you are good, that you love us, and that you're in control. And uh, may us, Lord, I just pray we take one more step towards full devotion to you this week. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys can stand with us.